Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. A third of Pakistan is now underwater. An estimated 33 million people, or 15% of the total population, have been affected by what's called the most severe flooding in recent history. And more than 1,300 people, including over 400 children, have died since mid-June, according to the United Nations. The Mancha Lake, the biggest freshwater lake, is reported to be in dangerously high water levels. That is the biggest freshwater lake in the country. How dire is the situation? What caused the catastrophic floods and how badly has Pakistan been hit? I'm pleased to be joined from Islamabad by Mushahid Hussein, Chairman of Pakistan Senate's Defence Committee, and from Beijing by Professor Hu Shisheng, Director of uh, the Institute of South and Southeast Asian Studies at the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. Let me uh, go to Professor Hu first. Uh, as I said, right now Pakistan is said to resemble a small ocean displacing hundreds of thousands of people and uh, some numbers here for instance according to the united nations 500,000 displaced people are living in relief camps nearly one million homes have been damaged over 700,000 livestock have been lost and uh, some 6.4 million people are in dire need of humanitarian aid and three million children are estimated to be in need of assistance. The Pakistani government has declared a national emergency and is seeking urgent help from the international community. Professor Hu, how do you describe the extent of the damage from the reports that you have seen and uh, how are the local people coping with the situation? I think this, uh, this unprecedented flood is really causing dramatic damage to the daily lives of the people in Pakistan. We know that uh, the, the, the famous river, Hin, uh, Hindus River, running extremely from the northern part of Pakistan and rightly to the southern part of uh, Pakistan, directly to the sea. So the whole area, it is one third of the area uh, uncovered by water. So you can imagine nearly 200 million people living in this piece of land, especially along the Hindus River. So this flood really causing a great damage. We know that the world's largest irritated agricultural farming land is locating, lying along this river. So while this flood was causing really, not only the, now the daily lives, but maybe furtherly uh, doing more damage to the agricultural activities in the coming season. Uh, mm. The famines, the food shortage could also causing another round of uh, humanitarian uh, crisis mm. in the future. And also the reconstruction. We know that uh, nearly 5,000 kilometers of highways, hundreds bridges have been damaged. How to reconstruct, rebuild, also need times. And also we know the pandemic after right. the flood we should also be, uh, be careful about yeah. the, the post-flood disaster. How do you look at the specific measures that the Pakistani government has taken to uh, relieve and uh, recover from the situation, whatever they can? And uh, how do you gauge the progress of these efforts? 
Professor Hu. Uh, of course, now the, the, the Pakistan government at the central government level and the provincial level, even at the district level, they are making monitoring efforts to doing more reliefs. But we know that because of the water has uh, cut the living places, residential places in, in small islands, so how to make the islands connected, how to make the, deli uh, the, 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 the reliefs to be delivered right at the right time. So it's still uh, humorous uh, challenges. Although that, uh, and also at the same time, the, the, the Pakistan government, because of the shortage of money, not only the money, because shortage of the daily necessities, so need more free and uh, efficient transportation of this uh, materials, necessary materials, especially the delivery capacity of the government at different levels is under strain. Yeah. So the international community, especially the neighboring countries, should uh, rush to the to the spot to help them, uh, mm. uh, giving them a more helpful hands right. to help them. Let's mm -hmm. do it together. Right. United uh, uh, Nations Secretary General Guterres has described the floods as uh, uh, monsoon on steroids. He and uh, in recent in the past few weeks, record monsoon rains dumped more than five times the 30 year average rainfall in some provinces. How much have the monsoon and downpours contributed to the extreme floods? Are there other factors uh, to our knowledge that make the situation particularly severe this year? There are several, uh, several some other reasons, like the intense heat waves hunting from April to May. So the meteorologist said that this kind of warmer air can hold much more moisture. So make the, the air much more wetter, humid, which will intensify the monsoon conditions. And also it is said that the long period heated wave had melted the glacier, the snow-crested mountains, make the glaciers to be melting more water, which was running into the uh, tribunal, uh, tributaries of the rivers, and they make the river like the Hindus have uh, received much more a uh, big number of uh, water uh, comparing to the ordinary uh, ordinary year. And also there is somebody said that because of the monsoon this year arrived a little earlier. And also somebody said that uh, because of the m mismanagement or mismanagement of the development along the uh, rivers, like the, uh, not a few number of people are living in the flooded zone. This may um, also contribute to the disasters and charities. And also somebody said the La Nino phenomena had been haunted there for uh, at least two years, also make some contributions. And also somebody said the intense air, low pressure with haunting uh, in the area of Arabian Sea also make some contributions. So it is that several uh, aspects or factors contributed to this year's unprecedented flood. Pakistan's weather department has warned that more rain is still on the horizon and the situation is expected to worsen in the days and weeks ahead. So after two months of struggle, how difficult is it going to be for Pakistan to continue to cope? And uh, concerning the Mancha Lake that's deemed dangerously full, uh, how much more distress is that going to add to the disaster response and relief? Because uh, the rain uh, hadn't been totally stopped. There are still rainfall expected, and while at the same time, how to managing reducing the crisis, enhancing the, de the delivery capacities. So at the same time, on the one hand, fight against the expected heavy rain rainfall, 
still, and also at the same time, how to make the delivery uh, to be a more visible progress. And at the same time, the, the transportation facility has been totally damaged. So how to make all these ends to meet each other, really a, a big, big challenge. So I think that uh, the, the, the international community, especially the neighboring countries, especially like China, which have much more experiences in this area, have to rapidly provide more and more efficient uh, help, especially the necessities to be delivered to the right spot. Otherwise, this coming winter, the coming spring will, will, will witness even more hmm. disasters. Well, China has been following the situation closely. Um, first to start, which State Councilor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi sent a message in mid-July to his Pakistani counterpart expressing shock and uh, deep condolences. In August, China announced it would donate about 100 million yuan, which is about 14 million US dollars of emergency supplies. Then President Xi Jinping sent condolences to his Pakistani counterpart Arif Alvi, saying that China stands with Pakistan in the face of natural disasters and will continue to provide support for relief and recovery work. And days later, China pledged another 300 million yuan or some 44 million US dollars of emergency supplies. I understand that uh, uh, some of the uh, humanitarian assistance provided by China has arrived in Pakistan. Meanwhile, Chinese companies which have been operating in Pakistan have also provided humanitarian aid and more is on the way. So, Professor, Professor Hu, what does these actions say about China-Pakistan friendship and uh, how can China's expertise, capacity, and experience in disaster relief potentially help with Pakistan's relief efforts? Uh, the timely assistance and re relief uh, uh, assistance uh, provided to Pakistan uh, furtherly demonstrated that Sino-Pakistan relations really time-tested. Uh, friendly need is a friend indeed. And uh, we, we can all remember that what uh, Pakistan has provided uh, timely help to us during our Wenchuan uh, earthquake. And also it shows that we are really iron brother, brothers. Somebody even said bronze sisters, iron brothers. Uh, so in the, in the coming days, uh, I think the Chinese people, Chinese government stand side by side with the Pakistan people, Pakistan government. So that is uh, not of uh, any question. And uh, uh, China's experience in the drainage, storage, uh, of this kind of water resources, I think we can um, provide uh, much more help. But of course, that is in a, maybe you know, even more important in the, in the post-flood reconstruction period. But also, I think that uh, we see we know that CPAC is there, so CPAC can be a very important, uh, very valuable platform to provide this uh, this kind of help in the you know, in the future reconstructions. And, uh, but at presently, of course, the crisis management, we, we have to provide more daily necessities to the peoples hit by the, by the mm -hmm. unprecedented uh, flood. But in the future, how to improve the water resources reservation uh, management, uh, especially the river management. I think that China has done a great job in, in, in the past so many years. So we have this kind of experience. We can even co-run a certain kind of training process right. to see how to address this in a, in a, in a more efficient way. Right. And uh, I think that uh, expecting CPEC can be uh, play a much more role in this regard. Yeah. Let me turn to um, uh, Senator Hussein. Finally, we are able to have him on the line. Uh, Mr. Hussein, thank you very much for joining us. So uh, tell us uh, how dire do you gauge the situation and is Pakistan getting 
the much needed help uh, as fast as uh, it needs? I think it's a worst kind of calamity caused by international climate change. We are facing the consequences of pollution done by Western countries in the past, although our contribution to uh, emissions is less than 1%. And we feel we are not getting the international community's help that we deserve, apart from China and some important Muslim countries, because they are spending billions to fight the war in Ukraine. But for saving lives in Pakistan, 35 million people affected, 1.2 million pregnant women, uh, 1 million homes destroyed, cattle destroyed, uh, and one stick MND3 freak weather incidents. So the calamity is very serious, and the consequences of these floods will include poverty, hunger, disease, health issues, housing dislocation. So this is something, you know, I used to read. It's a disaster of biblical proportions, you know, horrendous unseen we could imagine in storybooks and fables as you said it's like an ocean uh, today so i think that humanitarian issues should be placed at the forefront not geopolitics and i hope that the international community helps out we are grateful to china the first country to help us with tents with money with other assistance medicine and so forth other countries from the arab world and muslim countries but the western response I'm disappointed. There are more, if it was in Europe, it was Western people, the response would be very different. And I can see it from the Ukraine crisis. There Thank are you. double standards yeah. and they cause the crisis and the pollution and we are facing the consequences. Our people. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Mr. Mushahid Hussein, Chairman of uh, Pakistan Senate's Defense Committee. I wish you all the I wish the Pakistani people all the very best. And many thanks to Professor Hushisheng, Director of the Institute of South and Southeast Asian Studies at China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. We'll take a short break and when we come back, my exclusive interview with the Syrian ambassador to China. Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Xinjiang, Xinjiang, Xinjiang. It's in the spotlight again. A delegation of diplomatic envoys from 30 Muslim-majority countries visited the autonomous region in August. What was their personal experience there? How big is the gap between what they saw and what is told by the Western media? I talked to a member of the delegation who comes from a country once ravaged by terrorism, Syria. He also told me why Syria decided to join the Belt and Road Initiative. I had the pleasure to be joined by the Syrian ambassador to China, His Excellency Mohammed Hassanain Kadam. What's his expression, impression of Xinjiang? What did he do there? Let's take a look. Thank you very much for hosting me on your very widely followed program. It's an honor. Thank you. And it's an honor to be to uh, my, the ambassador of my country in the friendly uh, China. In fact, this is my second posting to China. Uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, among a group of uh, 
uh, diplomats from 30 OIC countries that visited uh, Xinjiang uh, for a period of five days. In fact, my deputy accompanied me the full uh, tour. I arrived only the last two days. I want to tell you the gap between what we saw in reality on the ground and what we usually read in Western media outlets is unbridgeable by all standards. Of course, coming from Syria, after 12 years of terrorist and Western war launched against my country, in fact, it's the same game replay of the same lies from the same media outlets that are forging stories out of nowhere. It was very impressive tour. Everyone was impressed. And what impressed me more, including uh, all the delegation, was the successful policies taken by the Chinese government that changed this remote province into an oasis of business and success, which reflected on the lives of, and well-being of the people there from all ethnicities. The peaceful atmosphere where you can walk in the markets for late hours in the night. All the tour was impressive. I must thank Big thank you for the organizers of that tour. Did you have the freedom to talk to some members of the local community of different ethnic backgrounds to know how, you know, what they want uh, in life, how they feel about life, and uh, uh, what were your takeaway from these exchanges, if you had any? Yeah, we met, in fact, people uh, from all walks of life, workers, tradesmen, religious figures who live peacefully, preserve their culture, it reflects in their dress codes, food, lifestyle, whether in the mosque or the factory or the school. I do believe that uh, the freedom and well-being of uh, the uh, Xinjiang people, really, they enjoy freedoms that cannot be matched by many Muslim communities in many countries that criticize China now, at least they feel they belong to their own country, while on the other side, those communities in the Western countries, in fact, they feel disenfranchised, not belonging. No wonder the number, the huge number of ISIS groups, you know, the terrorist group, came from European countries and with the consent and the blind eye of their governments. This is the full sense of not belonging. Uh, I have all uh, only congratulations for the success of the Chinese policies and, in fact, uh, wishing the well-being of the people of Xinjiang. In fact, we look forward for the revival of Xinjiang's role throughout history as the main gate of the Silk Road, which Syria was very important part of. In terms of the freedom of pursue religious beliefs, Xinjiang has many mosques. Uh, there are many people who uh, believe in Islam and their culture and religious practice um, are different from those of other ethnic groups and uh, religious believers. Uh, what was your impression after touring possibly mosques and these religious sites and talking to them, to religious figures or people? Do you have a sense that uh, their freedom to practice the religion that they believe in is fully protected and that their uh, religious heritages and including whole cultural heritages were adequately protected. And if you could, uh, will you share with us one example of what you saw in this? In fact, we, uh, the group visited mosques and met with people, prayed with people, mingled with people 
in uh, schools, in uh, factories, in plants, in uh, everywhere. I didn't notice any uh, thing imposed. In fact, not only me, all the delegation. People were ex exercising their religious uh, rituals, uh, normally observing their uh, uh, culture uh, and preserving their culture. You can tell from the dress code, the beards, the, their lifestyle. I didn't see any uh, uh, diminished or limited uh, limitations on the freedoms. They, and this is what they called us, in fact. And this is what all the delegation wants. Hmm. If you were to share with us one moment that imprinted in your mind during your trip, which one would it be? It, it was in the market. You know, we, in fact, at the last day in Urumqi, we went in a tour in the city. The historical uh, appearance of the city, the, the buildings, very well maintained, mosques, and people in the street, you know, to be able to shop. In fact, we stayed until 12 o'clock. This is very safe atmosphere. We mingled with everyone. In fact, I bought a lot of dry fruits and, you know, traditional crafts. Everyone is exercising his freedom to uh, practice his religion and as well as to uh, uh, practice, I mean, his uh, survivability through work. Uh, <clears throat> it's a success story. Uh, uh, it's an envious success story. Uh, and uh, uh, we enjoyed really the tour. It was a very beautiful uh, tour. I missed a lot uh, not going the first two days. Was it the first time that you visited Xinjiang? Because you were posted in China before. Yeah, it was my first uh, time. Yeah. So comparing what you saw and comparing what you read what you have been reading on the international media about all the horrible things that were alleged to have taken place in Xinjiang, including genocide or forced labor, concentration camp. How do you understand the huge gap? What accounted for the huge gap between what you saw and what you understood and what was told to you on the media? And why do you think so many lies are being stirred up about Xinjiang? Uh, first of all, China is a success story. And Xinjiang is another example of this success story. Uh, I think Xinjiang, within the last decade, achieved about 250% uh, growth. It's a remarkable figure by all standards, and it reflected on their, uh, on the people's life and well-being. And about genocides, uh, this, I mean, these ridiculous accusations. You know, you cannot accuse a country that hosts 56 ethnicities living in peace for thousands of years of committing genocide. You know, the diversity is enough proof that there is the real essence of the democracy and exception is manifested within the people and their culture. While on the other hand, in fact, if you look in the societies of the countries that accuse uh, China, look at their social structure. They are mono-ethnic, mono-religious, and in fact, I'm sorry to say, same color. And if you want to conclude something here, it will tell you that a lot of genocidal history they pass through. And it can tell the number of different communities that were eliminated to reach this, I'm sorry to say, eugenic society. It will be very wise for these countries to learn coexistence and tolerance and see Chinese classes. To, to acquire this culture.
Let's talk a little bit about uh, the situation in Syria uh, after a decade, over a decade of uh, war and instability. Uh, right now, Syria is slowly trying to regain its sovereignty to embark on the road of reconstruction. I understand that since the beginning of this year, Syria joined the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, how did Syria make this choice? What does it look to benefit from this project and what would, be, would it be mainly about? Thank you. Very important question. It's like the rest or majority of third world countries. We believe the BRI initiative brings hope of a new modality, modality of work between countries based on win-win without dictation or disrespect. And what adds more depth to the initiative is the historical context it takes as it revived the ancient Silk Road, which my country was part of some 23 centuries ago. Of course, Syria can benefit a lot from this initiative, especially with the rebuilding process that already took off in my country. We wish and invite Chinese companies to be part of uh, the rebuilding process and take advantage of the encouraging it must, uh, investment atmosphere recent laws offered and uh, the wide range of spectrum of works they can take part in. Of course, we look with special care that these companies come from friendly country that stood beside mine during the hardships. Are there specific areas that you can recommend to investors, investments from China? Because you represent Syria, you know the country very well. Where should Chinese companies, for instance, start in trying to carry out some project under the BRI? You know, there are a lot of facts of disruption that was caused by the war in Syria. And uh, the field of infrastructure, you know, the field of uh, industry, the field of agriculture. Uh, there are many fields that uh, uh, need maybe to rebuild. And we have a, a plan on this uh, rebuilding that arranged by the Syrian Planning Commission with other ministries. And it has a, a look for Syria, post-war Syria. The uh, Chinese uh, companies can get involved in ports, in roads, in bridges, in transportation, in uh, railways, you know, con that connect uh, Syria to Iraq, maybe connecting north to south, as well as uh, ports. And the gap that we missed during the war of the for the growth, natural growth and development of Syrian economy. So the, uh, the, the spectrum is very wide. Thank you so much for your time, Your Excellency, the Syrian ambassador uh, to China, Mr. Mohammad Hassanai Kadam. Thank you very much exactly. for Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, dear Lushen. Thank you. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Dushin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Dushin in Beijing. You've got The Point.